Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services leader. You can follow me on Twitter at XBorderTax. Today, I'm in our D.C. studio, where I'm honored to be joined by John Harrell. John is an international tax partner in our Washington National Tax Services office. Before joining PwC, John was the global tax director for GE Capital, and prior to that, John was senior counsel at U.S. Treasury's Office of International Tax Counsel. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Doug. It's great to be here. Well, so John, you've joined us less than six months ago. Right. What an exciting six months it has been. A lot of rapid change, a lot of volatility. We've got an entirely new sandbox to play in with U.S. tax reform. I was really hoping to get your perspective on what it's really like, you know, as a tax director and our clients that are out there, what you've seen and learned as an advisor over the last six months and really get some insight and some practical experience because, you know, I've been sitting on this side of the table for my entire 20 year career and you know, as an advisor, trying to put myself in my client's shoes is obviously something I really try to do and really interested in getting some of your impact. And so maybe before we even dive in, just, you know, how has the transition been? I mean, how do you enjoy kind of going on the other side of the, the table, given your prior experiences? Right. Well, um, I wanted to get close to the action, you know, from a technical perspective, um, you know, this big shift, you know, this is a generational shift in tax reform. And no matter, I think, what you think about the pr prospects of future legislative change, um, you know, we're going to be in this world for quite a while. And uh, it is an interesting world. It is completely different than the old world in almost every respect. Even though the statute is built on kind mm -hmm. of the old system, I think all of the things that we're focused on as tax people change. And you know, being here with this platform and these resources and the amount of people kind of all focused on, you know, getting smart, getting up to speed, understanding what's going on, and then helping clients real world problem solve uh, through these issues is exciting. Um, I think it's a great time to be at a place like this. And it's been awesome. So. Nice. Yeah, I, I like the way you you describe that. It's the because the building looks totally different. When I say the building, the architecture of our new U.S. tax code, and it is it's fundamentally different. But what's amazing to me is that the foundation is generally the same. As we think right. about, we've lost a system of deferral, but the entire architecture of our system really still is based on the system of deferral. Right? It's just the now the non-deferral piece is this 951 Cap A guilty provision. We still have to deal with all the expense apportionment, as we talked about with one of our partners and your former and now current colleague, Pat Brown, right. last week's on a couple weeks ago's podcast. But it is fascinating to me that we fundamentally changed our system of, of international taxation for corporations, but we kept the foundation the same. And I think that you know one of the challenges that I've seen as I've gone to talk to a lot of companies is particularly non-tax people who really don't understand, don't get it, like that this is such a fundamental change to how we practice and how we, we pull the levers and turn the dials to be able to, to try to, to manage things. Absolutely. CFOs, uh, you, know, you know, obviously run the gamut in terms of their interest in tax. All of them are interested on some level because it impacts... Uh, at the very least, cash flow. And uh, 
the challenge I think of of a good in-house tax director um, all the way to you know a junior uh, tax operations person inside a company is learning to communicate about this world in a way that resonates with the finance community who's responsible for the financial statement um, and also demonstrates the importance of these various changes and how they may impact. You know, forecasting that kind of communication, I think, is uh, the most challenging job that an in-house person has. And it's something that, you know, we uh, we on this side of the fence feel, you know, painfully when we're trying to explain to our tax colleagues who are who happen to sit in-house or 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 even just around the country. Um, but, you know, for the in-house person, they're dealing with someone who may have no background right. in any of this technical uh, garbage. And, uh, you know, you're trying to communicate in a way that resonates with them. And that skill set and that focus is, you know, been put to the test in the last year because some of these changes are very hard to understand, even for tax people. And if you're sitting there managing kind of a P&L and you're a CFO, you know, you have a lot of issues, including this one. And, you know, you need to kind of have someone who's kind of giving it to you in a way that's accessible to you. And that's a big challenge, I think, uh, that, you know, in-house people have had to deal with. Oh, yeah. I mean, and you're right. It's hard even explaining this to other tax people, let Absolutely. alone somebody who's not a tax. So let, let's unpack some of some of those pieces. Um Let's start really with with tax departments and how they're adjusting and I mean, just compliance and process. And, you know, how are tax departments, you know, from what you've seen, you know, in your in your time since you've, you've joined here, really adapting to this, adjusting to this? Any suggestions and recommendations as far as just trying to deal with this new world order? Well, I think, you know, there was a huge focus on the transition. So, uh 965, you know, the uh, one-time tax on historic earnings. It was a, ended up being a very complicated mathematical exercise. Um, the regs were just finalized, and all through that process, there were changes that materially impacted a number of people's kind of tax liability. Q uh, another Q&A was just issued. Right. I mean, it still hasn't totally landed. That's no, and we have, you know, the hangover from, uh, you know, accelerating any deferred 965 amount. You know, you have to be very careful about what sort of transactions you do with respect to your defects. You know, that'll continue for a while. And so, you know, all of that is still a bit of chaos. Um, but that was a huge effort. I think, you know, writing down or adjusting your deferreds uh, for an in-house person, um, that's, you know, hopefully done at this point, but it was, you know, a big exercise. Um, and then, you know, you kind of turn to kind of, well, what's the run rate look like? And the run rate is sort of all of these reg packages that are dropping, guilty, FDII, you know, expense apportionment, 260, you know, it's just bam, 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 bam. And each of those, I think, requires a modeling exercise. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the, I think the shift for most in-house people is probably, you know, I used to kind of understand the balance sheet. I used to understand you know, the tax provision. And now I'm shifting to really something that is dramatically different, that has different pressure points, that has, you know, different kind of potential volatility, which is sort of the enemy of, of the in-house tax person. And how do I control that? Mm -hmm. You know, how do I forecast? And so I think in-house people are sort of facing into that question. 
Um, and, you know, obviously we're very interested in helping people think through those issues here, which is exciting for us. But for them, I think, you know, it really is, I can't tolerate volatility. You know, I have to be able to forecast no matter what the number is. And so repetitive sort of modeling that's incorporating changes as they come, either factual or legal, is, um, you know, that's the new order of the day. And I think that will continue for a few years until people have a sense of how all of this fits together. Yeah, what I found interesting, John, is as I'm talking to companies, I mean, they had the, we had they had these processes in place, right, to, to manage and, and to model that their foreign tax credit and their limitation or the subpart F or uh, under the, you know, prior world. And now these rules are so complicated to try to build an Excel file or whatever, just a, a model in-house is so amazingly complicated. As you well know, what we've been trying to do with even within PwC and the tools and the resources that we have, just what a complicated exercise it is because of the overlap of, of all of these provisions. And so what I certainly empathize with is as these organizations are used to having, you know, whether it's one or two people or dozens of people that do the modeling, the task is just exponentially it's more, infinitely, infinitely right. more complex and harder. And then so trying to figure out, well, do you outsource those activities? Um, how should those people change how they're operating as far as the ones actually running the models to the ones that are doing more review and strategic thinking? I think there is a, a fundamental change that is taking place within corporate America as far as trying to own those models and do that computation. It's just it's, it's so very difficult. And, you know, what advice would you give to a, to a tax director that is, that is kind of looking and saying, okay, do I have the appropriate, you know, resources? How do I allocate those resources? Where should they be focusing their time? Because if there's one thing that I've seen is that there doesn't seem to be lots of money being thrown at tax directors to go and spend even more, to get even more resources. Well, I, th I think that that is right. And I think part of that undoubtedly is um, expectations. Uh, obviously, there's pressures that corporates are feeling on costs and expenses, and they're benchmarking themselves against, you know, their competitors or their peers, figuring out what they ought to spend. But setting all that aside, it's a communication point, and it's a very difficult one. You know, sitting down with your boss, the CFO, and saying, look, you know, this sort of complexity, I I'm not just in here whining because, you know, my job has gotten harder. I'm I'm in here because, you know, we're facing jointly this problem and making the CFO a partner in that and, and sort of discussing kind of, look, for a while, this is going to require kind of unique and dedicated attention and getting real buy-in. I mean, that's the challenge. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a really hard job. I mean, it's a really hard job because most CFOs are masters of the universe and, you know, they have a sort of a command of a lot of complexity. Right. And, uh, you know, not just sort of tax, but just sort of, you know, they're dealing with all manner of things that are equally as important as this, you know, convincing people that, look, this really is a big deal. This is 21 percent of your of your after tax return, uh, you know, and there's volatility in it and it's difficult to forecast. And even experts are saying, well, you know, could be this could be that. Uh, I think that is a repeated communication and figuring out, a, I, I mean, I'm going back to the same thing I said mm -hmm. earlier, but figuring out a way to kind of connect with someone like that is is really, I think, the key. 
And if you can do that, you know, it's great. And most in-house people have a lot of trust from their finance team because mm-hmm. tax people do contribute a lot of value, I think. So hopefully that conversation is going well. But uh, I think focusing and being honest about the complexity that's coming and the volatility you're facing is key. Yeah, one thing I have not seen kind of across the board, which maybe I thought we'd see more of is as a result of tax reform and with the fact that the U.S. corporate rate went from 35 to 21, that companies would invest more money into their tax departments to deal with the complexity and reinvest potentially some of those savings. And I think that to your point that their CFOs and organizations are always looking to try to reduce costs, not necessarily increase costs, for, particularly for something that oftentimes is viewed as more compliance oriented. And so, you know, I know I talked to, to the VPs of tax, tax directors about this, and they shake their heads and they get it. And it's just like, well, it's, it's, it's a difficult sell to the CFO and others within the organization because everybody is having to deal with that. So maybe we turn a little bit then now more to the the CFOs and you talked about communications, but are CFOs ready for the volatility and the really the some of the, the paradigm shift that we've seen? But maybe we're just from a CFO perspective, you know, do we do you think and, and the street in general for the the complexities that we now have to deal with and some of the uncertainties? And frankly, we're focusing on US tax reform. There's the whole world of BAPS and ATAB right. one and two as well. And so when we think about the confluence of all of this change, both in the U.S. and, and outside the U.S., are CFOs ready for that? What advice do you give to the CFOs that are listening to explain you know, why tax just doesn't give them this number and can stick to it? Like maybe we were, had a little bit easier time in the past. Yeah, I mean, the tax community was great at that. You know, for 30 years, they had to develop kind of good processes and systems and you know, not a ton of volatility on, on, on the tax line. And, you know, it's interesting. I think so far um, we haven't seen a ton of volatility even post-tax reform. I mean, obviously people had very large one-time numbers. They had a year under the accounting rules to kind of process those numbers, and people were truing them up over the last 12 months. And But that's kind of in the rearview mirror. Uh, I think the next year we'll kind of get a better sense when we look at financial statements mm-hmm what sort of volatility we're going to see, you know, and, you know, what expectations people have. Uh, obviously, you have people who uh, were U.S. companies who no longer are. Um, they will be evaluating. You see people who are taking kind of preemptive actions to kind of tamp down volatility, like I'm going to liquidate all my foreign subsidiaries into branches in the U.S., which is, you know, a pretty dramatic uh, decision. Um and so you, I think you see the kernels of people kind of, you know, fighting the enemy of volatility uh, already. Um, you know, the true kind of uh, scope of it and um, how much sort of, you know, noise it makes. I don't think we know yet because, uh, you know, we're, we're really kind of in the first year in a lot of respects because uh, last year really was a sort of transition year and people handled it pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um as you see M&A activity, as you see sort of big transactions, as you see people realizing, oops, I made a mistake, uh, which is bound to happen just with all this complexity, um, you know, what's that going to mean? Um, so I think, you know, again, just helping kind of everyone inside the company kind of understand, you know, what these issues are and what their potential implications are will drive 
you know, appropriate investment and decisions because ultimately the people who are managing these companies, that's what they care about. That's right. And, and the levers are different too. I mean, fundamentally different. Absolutely. And I just think of, you know, a relatively basic fact pattern of a, of a company looking to make a dividend from a high tax jurisdiction. Right. Uh, if the company had excess limitation, the ability to be able to take foreign tax credits, just simply a dividend from a high taxed country like historically a Japan or, um, you know, any number of countries that there, there weren't that many that were higher to Korea. And then also withholding taxes when you start adding that, that you would just make the dividend distribution and that would bring back credits. And the. The, the, the change that has resulted from no longer having 902, that we have to deal with Section 960, and is just one example of, the, of just a fundamental, just different, different dynamic. Right. And cash, you know, cash, you know, we heard for years and years and years and years the lockout effect, you know, that, you know, these investments in foreign subsidiaries and the way the U.S. tax law sort of overlaid that trapped cash offshore couldn't get it back. You had people levering up the, their U.S. sort of balance sheet to fund that cash. And, you know, that was a huge driver of the last, you know, 15 years of sort of tax planning. Right. And um, that's gone. Uh, it is, I think, almost exclusively gone, particularly with what the IRS has done, you know, even though Section 956, which was the policeman of, you know, when you pay tax on bringing cash back to the U.S., or it was a major policeman. Um, you know, the IRS has relaxed those rules and, you know, it's probably you're not going to have an investment in U.S. property anymore under under their kind of theory. What are we going to focus on now? You know, now that cash isn't an issue, well, it really is rate, you know, and it really is kind of double tax or triple tax or, uh, you know, some some surprise, you know, from an M&A transaction or managing down to the statutory rate because of expense allocation mm -hmm. or whatever it is. You know, those are kind of the new uh, world order, I think, for all of us. Yeah, let's talk about a couple of those. So, so cash, you're absolutely right. What's interesting is that you know companies have a pile of PTI, which I'm still struggling to call PTEP. Yeah, I will I'm, never get that right. I'm, right. I'm working on it. Right. Um, it's it's PTEP. So there's a pile of previously taxed DNP offshore as a result of 965. Every year, companies are going to have a pile of PTEP that results from the guilty inclusion, and so effectively with the repeal of of deferral, and so. Now companies can get their cash back. Well, they still have to deal with Section 986C, which is foreign exchange gain or loss um, as a result of the, 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 time, the any differences in timing as far as when you recognize the whether it's the 965 subpart F or the guilty inclusion. So we still have to deal with withholding taxes. Right. And so treasurers certainly want their cash, but there are still tax things that, that we need to think about. But from a big picture perspective, companies are actually incentivized to bring all of that cash back and that PTEP back, particularly for those companies that are paying at or above 13.125% on their blended uh, CFC, within their blended CFCs, because that then reduces the amount of foreign assets that they would have for interest expense apportionment. So there is kind of a, a real reason for companies to bring back from a pure kind of planning perspective to, to manage that, that foreign asset ratio. But I do think it is there's still tax challenges to to be able to to get that cash back. And the other thing that I see a lot of is that these some of these historic structures with multiple holding companies that were set up for any number of reasons and deals and other transactions, that obviously becomes an impediment to right. even if there aren't any withholding taxes to be able to get the cash back and then having to deal with MLI. 
And so, you know, what do you, what do you tell, you know, the, the CFO or even companies as far as just for on the, on the cash piece? Well, I think, you know, again, it goes back to architecture and, you know, why do you have the tax structure you have? Why do you have the legal structure you have? Should it be simplified? How does it sort of adjust to the new world? Um, I think all of those issues kind of go to where am I going to put my cash? How am I going to deploy it around the world? And, you know, what sort of issues I face? Um, obviously, it's it's become a lot easier to make a loan, you know, around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, although even that has issues because, you know, you loan, you loan it to the wrong place and you have a beat issue or, you know, you distribute it the wrong way, you lose your foreign tax credit. So, um, you know, thinking about structure, uh, your current structure and your current footprint, which was designed for you know, a much different set of issues. Um, I think that's sort of the, you know, something everyone's going to have to focus on. And, I, and in-house people definitely are focused on it because, you know, they're, they're living day to day with the, I need cash in China tomorrow. Mm-hmm. How are we getting it there? I need cash in Singapore. I need cash in Ireland, where, you know, wherever they're, they're sort of dealing with. Uh, in addition to, I need cash in the U.S. for, you know, whatever reason. So. Right. And you had mentioned Section 956. So that is the investment in U.S. property. It generally, in the past, prohibited or discouraged CFCs from lending back to the U.S. to bring cash back. I mean, it's any type of investment in U.S. property. But those rules have potentially been been relaxed. And you know, one of the things that I think that a number of us were excited about when you know with with those proposed rules was that well, does this mean we can do global? cash pooling. Right. And now, so we can turn off 956 and now our CFC is, we can just have one big global cash pool. We've been telling treasurers for years, no, you need to have a separate pool for the U S you need to have a separate pool for foreign because we don't want the, the CFCs to be net depositors because that then deals, we have to deal with this 956 and then the whole spider web of potential issues on formed and funding. And I feel like over the last 30 years, we, we in the tax community had scared treasurers enough to Absolutely. like they know they can't do that. Has well, that was probably the number one thing, you know, treasure. If you remember kind of 385, so that was the debt equity issues that, that were debated in the Obama administration. You know, there was a huge response from treasurers saying, look, you know, I have all these intercompany loans. I can't possibly apply those rules that way. And, and treasury sort of responded. And so, you know, leading up to tax reform, all the treasurers had in their mind exactly what you're talking about. And I think CFOs and even maybe CEOs had it, too. And the one thing they probably thought was easy that was driven by these changes was now I have total cash flexibility. Right. I can I can get cash wherever I want it overnight. And and that's not exactly true, which I think is, you know, required some you know communication going back to the first point, getting in front of issues you know, kind of educating um, is hugely important. Yeah, and I think some of the the biggest challenges is to that for to be able to turn off 956, you have to be able to look through of a dividend distribution all the way back to to the U.S. And it's just there's just more analysis. And I feel like every time somebody outside of tax asks, asks a question, the response is, "Well, it's complicated." Right. Exactly. And it's like how many times can you have that as a response? But the fact is, is that it's it's just very true. Yeah, it hasn't it hasn't gotten uh, simpler by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, to your earlier point, the new system is completely and totally built on the old foundation. And so, you know, some of the old issues, you know, you see them sort of come up. We still have a separate tax system that measures income and expense differently than book. And as long as we have that, we're going to have kind of unique sets of issues. So, right. 
Yeah, and you had mentioned that you know the the thing that CFOs and frankly just big organizations want or dislike is volatility, and they want stability. Right. And you know we've gotten a lot of regs so far, a lot of proposed regs, a lot of guidance. But if there's one thing that it doesn't feel like we've got a lot of guidance on is you know form versus substance. And, right. You know as as people are structuring just ordinary business transactions, trying to structure things to be able to avoid, for example, a beat if you're a big U.S. multinational and how you contract, for example, if you're a U.S. service organization as far as, you know, trying to avoid massive outbound payments that could throw you uh, that, that could throw you into the into the beat. How how does that impact companies as, well, it, as they're it, trying to make decisions? It goes to, I think, kind of the sympathetic taxpayer. You know, you have a, a taxpayer who is not base eroding, for example, on the beat there, but they are, uh, if you look at the form of their transaction, they have kind of round trip cash flows or net cash flows that don't net out to a deduction in the U.S. paid to a foreign related party. But if you looked at the cash flows gross, it might. And and so when, when you know, you explain that as your tax person in house to uh, the people who are running the company uh, and you say, well, look, here's a policy of the statute that I shouldn't be kind of uh, stripping the U.S. base and, you know, getting an advantage because of it and that's sort of, you know, what, what these provisions are about. And you explain the fact pattern you're in, which uh, probably existed because uh, the tax department put it in place to begin with. Right. Um, uh, and you say, well, you know, even though I'm not base eroding, uh, I nonetheless have a beat payment. And, you know, they scratch their heads. Right. And they say, well, let's go talk to Treasury and say, you know, this doesn't make sense because it's not a... You know, Treasury, I think, is overwhelmed by um, people coming in with those sorts of fact patterns. And when you read the the regs they've put out, it's not I don't think that they're not sympathetic to, to the point, but they've they've sort of drawn a line and said, look, there's a body of law that goes back, you know, 100 years. Well, not 100 years, but it goes back a long time uh, that deals with form over substance that tells you form matters until it doesn't. That's sort of what that law says. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you pick the form, you're kind of stuck with it. And we're going to rely on that body of law for questions like that. I mean, you do see them deviate periodically. I mean, they did that with respect to foreign military sales, where the U.S. government is kind of a intermediary for mm-hmm. uh, sales to foreign governments. And they've treated that nonetheless as a sale and a foreign use for uh, defense contractors selling mm-hmm. to you know foreign parties. That's good FDII. Right. But um, uh, in general, they have not been that sympathetic to, to those issues. And uh, I don't think it's because they don't care or see the policy point. I just think it's the volume of them is so high. And so I think the outcome of that is, you know, people should restructure, you know, to the extent you can. Um, Yeah. And I think it also goes to the point that tax departments need to even be closer to the business than we've ever had to. And I mean, we've been saying this right for for years, but now it's even more important because you don't like I. I can just imagine a situation where, you know, if you're a services organization or whatever, and I mean, even if you're tangible goods, there's obviously, there's oftentimes a service element. There's so many different ways you could, like a business person could trip into a bad tax result that he or she would have no idea why that would be an issue. And the beat, the base erosion and anti-abuse tax is just one easy example to think about that. And so I think it's just so important for, you know, tax directors to make sure that they're even closer to the operational people than maybe they've been in the past, particularly from a U.S. perspective. I think as we've seen foreign principal structures and just managing all the non-U.S. tax risk that a lot of organizations were very close to that. But now within the U.S., 
it would be very easy for, I can see for a business person to end up tripping into to something. And if you get the form right out of the gate, well, you can still probably accomplish what that business person wanted to, and then take an issue that arguably shouldn't be an issue in the first place off the table. Right, exactly. So what about from a M&A and, and structuring perspective? Obviously the landscape is just, is so different, but what do you tell tax directors, CFOs, as far as thinking about, you know, how is the, the M&A landscape changed in, in approaching deals? Well, well, there's, you know, particularly with respect to obviously foreign subsidiaries of U.S. multinationals or U.S. Uh, headquartered institutions, although you have a lot of inbound issues as well. But the, um, the, the question kind of comes in in its most infant stage, like I'm selling this business, how should I do it? You know, and, and before that, that was never where the conversation started. The conversation started with something much further down the road, you know, that I'm selling this business and I have these 10 issues and I've already thought through it. Um, but now I think people are, you know, when they look at, you know, M&A activity, they're thinking, okay, what am I missing? You know, should I sell from the U.S.? Should I sell from the CFC, should I sell assets, should I sell stock? Where do I want to step up? Do I want to step up offshore? Do I want to step up in the U.S.? And all of that kind of depends on kind of who you are. You know, mm -hmm. these are all bespoke suits now um, from a tax perspective. And, you know, exactly what you want, you know, it's hard to answer without kind of knowing what your attributes are. And then what your buyer wants may be completely different. Uh, you know, they may have a completely different profile that, you know, suggests something different. And sort of understanding all that and the complexity of that negotiation is, is you know, again, CFOs are not, or people who run companies are not, you know, too sympathetic uh, to people who say it's really hard, you know, oh, right. this is really hard. Yeah, you know, okay, well, it should be hard, but um, it is really hard. And um, it requires a lot of thought and it requires sort of people to make big decisions quickly and they need great data at their fingertips and a great understanding of how that data relates to each other. And, um, you know, that's certainly what I'm focused on, you know, mm -hmm. getting my head around, make sure I understand it. Um, you know, I learn something every day and, uh, you know, I've been doing this for 18 years. So, you know, that's where we are, I think. It's fun, you know, but it is, it is fun. you know, volatility is scary. I mean, we've all had that moment where we're sitting in our office and somebody walks in and says, you know, why isn't this an issue or why isn't that an issue? And you say, oh, my goodness, you know, that is an it issue. is an issue. Yeah. And like uh, I hadn't thought. And yeah. I love that. we, And right. particularly when you got a young staff person right. or somebody. And there's been a number of those that have happened over the life since U.S. Yeah. reform. And somebody, yeah. why isn't this an issue? And yeah. somebody who's been hasn't been practicing for right. very long. You're like, nope, that's a great. Yeah. Great and, question. and when you're in house, you know, your sort of blood sinks to your feet, you know, because you're you, you immediately think of its implications. Um, and so we're all kind of living with that, which is not uh, necessarily fun, but it is, it makes our jobs very interesting and um, I think challenging, which, you know, that's what you want. You want a fun, challenging job. Um, and I think tax people have that right now. And um, so it's exciting time. I think for in-house people, I think even though they're sort of facing, you know, kind of controlled chaos with some of this, it's a great time to be here, you know, because we're kind of developing all kinds of tools and insights and analytics to kind of help navigate all this. Um, you know, we're obviously focused not just on the way we used to do business, but kind of bringing kind of a new sense of technology to kind of this new tax code, which really calls out for it because of its yeah. sort of complexity. And um, those are all exciting things for all of us, I think. I think, you know, educating our finance colleagues is, is you know, that is not to be lost in this conversation because, uh, you know, they do not understand it. They never will fully understand it. It's too 
sort of uh, insular and abstract, um, as we all know. Um, but uh, I think we can be a bridge for them. So. Yeah, I get a lot. I do a lot of recruiting, as you know, in my position as the international tax leader, and I just something I really enjoy, even at the campus level. And as I talk to, to people, young professionals, whether it's young accountants or lawyers or whatever the case may be, there is just so much complexity, and it's just it's really good for all of us within the the tax profession, whether you're in house, whether your law firm, accounting firm, whatever the, the case may be. And if it's if problem solving and doing this kind of thing is what you enjoy, it's only got more fun. Right, exactly. It, it, it's more challenging. But I, I think it, it's really good for, for the profession, and, and it's been a lot of fun. And I've been encouraging people to get into it. So for those that have made it this long into the podcast, you've, you've chosen well, or if you are contemplating, particularly international tax, and you know one of the things we didn't really spend much time on is the non-U.S. tax law changes, which – also add to that complexity. Absolutely. So, and we don't even know what those are really yet because they are far more volatile than the U.S. tax change. Absolutely. So, and even as right. we've talked about ATAD 2, the Anti-Tax Avoidance Directive 2, there's all these discussions with Digital Now and BEPS, yes. whether it's BEPS 2.0 or 3.0, like we can... There's, there's incredible amount of changes that, that are coming as well. So for the, the non-tax people listening, those that are waiting for that volatility to, to decrease and the stability to increase... I, I don't see it, frankly, in, in, in the no, term. Oh, absolutely not. You have you have countries competing for tax base, and that's going to just increase. You know, you just see it in the conversation. You know, if you sit in the back of a taxi cab in London, you will hear, you know, people talking about it, you know, ordinary right. people. So the Europeans are heavily focused on it. You know, where is our tax base? You know, what should we be compensated for? And that's just a competition. Well, so. maybe that can be the subject of our, of our next podcast. Absolutely. So I think we'll have to leave it at great insight, John, from a, a former tax director. And it's always great listening to, to, to that perspective, particularly as an advisor who spends my time on, uh, on this side of the fence. It's, it's great to get your perspective. Well, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. And thank you, John Harrell, PwC International Tax Partner in our Washington National Tax Services practice. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of Cross-Border Tax Talks. 